Welcome to Salt and Light with Pastor Rodney Finch. Salt and Light is a radio outreach ministry of Calvary Chapel, Cary. Jesus, speak to me. Open your word and reveal your heart to me. Salt and Light is a series of verse-by-verse studies through the Bible, focusing on its practical application to our everyday lives. Salt and Light is recorded live at Calvary Chapel, Cary, in Apex, North Carolina. Stay tuned. At the end of the program, we will give you information on how to contact us, so be sure to have a pen and paper ready. Today, Pastor Rodney will be teaching from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 11. So grab your Bibles and follow along. Now with today's teaching, here's Pastor Rodney. We serve a God who specializes in the impossible and the miraculous, don't we? Psalm 27, Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust, anybody know the rest, in the name of our God or in the name of the Lord God. Some men trust in chariots and some men trust in horses. That's the power of the flesh. That's the power of your strength. But we will trust in the name of our Lord. If you want to see God do the impossible, you got to be put in an impossible situation and then you ask him and then you trust him. I don't see trust in the Lord here. Verse 3 tells us, they said, give us seven days to think about it. That's a strange answer, but it's true, isn't it? When people are willing to compromise with the enemy, they make strange decisions, and they make strange requests. Obviously, now watch this. You're going to love it. Obviously, Nahash isn't intimidated at all. You need seven days? Go ahead. I'm amazed he didn't say, take two weeks. If you need two weeks, take two weeks. Take a month. We're going to wait right here. Take a month. You need seven days? Fine. He's not intimidated. He doesn't feel threatened at all. Why? Because in your own time, this is your own reading. Judges 19 through chapter 21. Judges chapter 19, chapter 20, and chapter 21. I will tell you quickly. We have the story of a Levite who had taken a concubine to a certain city. And while in that city, he met a man who let him stay in the house. And while in that house, some perverted men came to the door asking a Levite to give up the concubine that they might know her. And the owner of the house said, you can have the concubine and my virgin daughters, just leave the men alone. And so they took the concubine and they raped her and they left her laying at the door dead. The Levite saw this and he was so upset that he decided to send a message to Israel. Okay, this next section is rated R for extreme and graphic violence. He then took that woman and he cut her up in 12 pieces and he sent her pieces to all 12 tribes of Israel. If you know your Bible, you know this story. He sent her body to all 12 tribes of Israel. And the message was this. You guys need to come and help me fight these barbarians and help us to win this battle. And if you don't, this is the judgment you'll face. Well, listen, all the tribes gathered together to fight in that battle except one. And guess who that one tribe was? Jabesh Gilead.
And if I know my Bible, like I think I know my Bible, and if my guess is correct, I would, if I was a bet man, I would put money on the fact that Nahash knew this story. And he thought that no one's going to come and help the men of Jabesh Gilead because they didn't help when they were needed. So he says, go ahead and take seven days and see if you can get some help. Now, I want you to notice the parallel between Satan and Nahash in Israel and the Christian. First of all, I told you Nahash means what? Serpent or snake. Satan attacks us, but can't do anything against us without our agreement. He asks for our surrender. You see that there? Satan wants us to serve him, and he'll try to get us to give in. You see that there? Satan wants us to, to, wants to humiliate us and bring a reproach on God's people. Satan wants to blind us, and if he can't blind us completely, he'll blind us partially so we can't effectively fight against him. You see that there? Well, in verses four through six, we just read it. The Bible tells us that Saul was out in the field and a messenger comes and tells Saul what's going on. He said, the men of Nahash have surrounded the camp and they want us to be their servants. And they want to put out the right eye, not the left, the right. Verse six, look at it again. Verse six is a pivotal point in establishing Saul as king. The Spirit of God came upon Saul. When Saul heard this news, God's Spirit came upon him, and his anger was greatly aroused. Did you get that? Saul got angry. Listen, this is the proper spiritual, moral response in this situation. This is the proper spiritual, moral response in this situation, anger. Some Christians think it's wrong to get angry. It's not wrong to get angry. Thank you, sister. You got, you got problems in that area? No, I'm just... Uh. I'm sorry. I'm just joking. I, I know her. I can joke like that. It's not wrong to get angry. Listen, it is wrong to punch uh, holes in sheetrock, fellas. Say amen. amen. Ladies, it's wrong to throw dishes and pots and pans. <laughs> Say amen, ladies. It is not okay to slap somebody. I have to say that because I'm a pastor. Although sometimes you might feel like doing it. It's not okay. Ephesians 4.26, be angry but do what? Not sin or sin not. And don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Notice the Spirit of God came on Saul and he was angry. He was angry. It's okay to be angry. It's called, in the Bible, it's called righteous indignation. Righteous indignation. Too many Christians are into sloppy agape. (laughs) Write that down. I like that. Sloppy agape. Well, you know, I just love them and... Let them be. Jesus loves them. And don't you hate that kind of stuff? I don't just love them. And we love everybody. Love the world. The world loves daffodils. I love everybody. And I don't want to offend anybody. And I'll just stick to sloppy agape. And I won't deal with anything. And 
Doesn't that make you want to puke? It just does. I mean, get real. Everybody gets angry. Jesus got angry. You've been with us in our study in Luke. Jesus got angry. He came into his father's house and he finds a feeding frenzy of corruption and greed and wickedness. And he got angry. And Jesus didn't have an anger problem. And Jesus didn't need to go to anger management. And, and the Bible calls that righteous indignation. The Bible is clear. Listen, if you love, then anger is a necessary component of love. God is love, and therefore God will righteously be angry. Exodus 4.14. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Psalm 7.11. God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked most of the time. Every day, the Bible says. Acts chapter 17. Paul is walking around Athens. His spirit is stirred, or he's angry Nehemiah, you know, got angry, and he pulled out the men's beard. Remember that? And I told you how much I love that. Remember? And Ezra got angry and pulled out his own beard. Remember I told you how much I hate that? I say pull out their beard. Don't pull out my own beard. But there's a necessary time when the proper moral response to injustice and some horrible thing that happens is anger. Christians, we should be angry when we see children sexually abused. We should be angry when we see, can somebody say a better amen than that? We should be angry when we see a culture that supports abortion. We should be angry when, we, when people are misusing God's word for greed and gain. Jesus was angry, but his anger was always other-centered. He wasn't angry because he was feeling hurt. He wasn't angry because he was ignored. He wasn't angry because he was cranky. Jesus wasn't cranky. He was angry when others were hurt. Well, in verse 7, it tells us righteous anger translates into action immediately. Notice in verse 7. Did we read verse 7? Did we read verse 7? Let's read it again. So he took a yoga. If you look at verse 7, say, I'm looking at it again. So he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them, yeah, we did read this, throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of the messenger saying, whosoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel or Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on all the people and they came out with one consent. When he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah were how many? 30,000. And they said to the messengers who came, thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. And then the messengers came and reported to the men of Jabesh and they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we will come out to you. He said to Nahash, wink, wink, tomorrow we'll come out to you and you could do with us whatever seems good to you. That's deceptive. And so it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left to stand together. And then the people said to Samuel, who is he who said shall Saul reign over us? Bring them that we might put them to death. Man, they're trying to kill everybody. They're like, we're going to just keep killing folk. we just killing folk all day. 
We're going to kill some more folk. I love this chapter. But Saul said in verse 13, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. And then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal, underline that, Gilgal, and renew the kingdom there. Underline that. Let us go to Gilgal, renew the kingdom there. And in your margins, write Ebenezer. And I'll tell you something. So all the people went to Gilgal. And there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there... Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So stop right there. Give me your attention. Righteous anger translates into action immediately. Notice Saul in verse 7 took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of a messenger. And the message here was this. If you don't come out and fight these Ammonites with Saul and Samuel, we're going to chop up your oxen the same way. Remember the concubine? And your oxen in the Bible was your tractor. So it was important that you have an oxen. So you have a tractor and you can grow crops and get harvest and have food and take care of your family. It was a point of your livelihood and, and sustenance. That's the word I'm looking for, sustenance. So... To cut up an oxen for you to lose your oxen was a big deal. Your oxen in those days was very, very important for life. Well, in verses 8 and 9, it tells us that 330,000 came out. That's a lot of people to fight the battle. Verse 9, the men of Jabesh Gilead were told that they would have help by tomorrow, and they probably put away their eye patches. You'll get that on the way home. Verse 10, the men of Jabesh told Nahash, tomorrow we will come out to you and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. Now, this is obviously a trick to make Nahash think that they're going to surrender. So the next day, his army won't be ready. They'll be sitting around waiting and then Saul's army can come and attack them and they're totally caught off guard. But they're doing this to put them off for a day until all the 330,000 get there. Verse 11 tells us that Saul begins this brilliant military strategy. Did you get that? He split the people up and he puts them in three groups. The battle begins and Israel kills the Ammonites for five hours. They are just killing. Can you imagine this field? It's like, like Braveheart. You see like in Braveheart. Oh, I'm sorry, y'all, y'all spiritual. Y'all don't watch the movies. <laughs> That movie that people watch called Braveheart. I saw the trailer. Just all I saw, I saw it was a trailer. And bodies were everywhere. Blood was everywhere, laying on top of each other. And I get that scene here. They were killing people all day long, five hours. They killed them, so not two of them were standing together. They wiped them out. This was a great victory for Israel that day. Well, listen, this day was a great victory. One for Israel of a great outward battle, but listen, they also won a great inward battle. And the inward battle that Saul faced was more important than the outward battle. So verse 12 through 15 describes the inward battle that Saul won. The people in verse 12, please look at it, said to Samuel, 
Who was against us in the beginning? Who is it that said Saul shall not reign over us? Bring those guys here. Let's put those daddy downers to death. And notice Saul said, no, let's not put any doubters to death. Today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Samuel, the prophet, said, let's go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. Now, I want to point out three big issues that God was dealing with in Saul. The first one is the issue of insecurity. You might remember in chapter 10, there were men who said, who is this Saul? We don't want him to reign over us. If Saul were insecure, he would, at this time, he would have taken the opportunity to get them back and avenge himself on his enemies. So the issue of insecurity. And then the issue of revenge. Again, the inward battle is what we're talking about, saints. The issue of revenge. These men who were against him didn't give him support. They didn't, the Bible says they didn't give him any gifts. They didn't bring him any presents when he became king. And that was the appropriate thing to do when somebody became king. You give them presents and you give them gifts and you give them things. And there were men who didn't do that because they weren't in support of, you know, Saul becoming king. And so... Saul could have taken revenge on that and put those men to death if he wanted to right now. Thirdly, not only the issue of insecurity, the issue of revenge, but also the issue of pride. We're talking about stuff in the heart now. Saul just won a great victory, but notice he didn't get the big head. He said, the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. If Saul were prideful, he would have said, you know, my strategy was awesome. He would have said, you know, I have accomplished a great victory in Israel. The interesting thing about Saul's life is that he started well. Everything so far, if y'all been with me on Wednesday night going through Samuel, you know this. Everything that we've read so far, there's no problems. Saul's a great guy. This is a great brother in the Lord. <laughs> He's great. He's humble and smart and intelligent and military strategist. And, you know, I don't want all the attention and, you know, I don't need all this entourage and all this stuff. Oh, put your hands together and let's make some noise for our new king. And he's not even standing there. Curtains open and he's hiding behind the equipment. And of course, he's seven feet tall. How much can you hide? I mean, he, he's probably hiding behind a big speaker and his head is like still there. And they're like, oh. He's just a great guy. He really is so far... All that we've read of him, he is a great guy. It is a fascinating thing to study the life of Saul and to see how he started so well and ended so poorly. Am I right about it? And you can start so well and end so poorly. So you have to be careful. You got to be careful. You got to stay humble. I think it starts right there. Amen. Two people. Thank you. I'm going to preach to y'all. Y'all come sit right here because the rest of them ain't listening to me. My son-in-law listening and my sister with the anger problem is listening. No. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm going to buy you dinner. I'm, I'm serious. I'm thinking. <laughs> you got to be careful. I mean, 
you know, when the Lord's using you, that's it. The Lord is using you and you just, you know, people are like, oh, you're so wonderful. You're so great. Ah, you're like the best things since ice cream. And you're, oh, really? Really? Oh, tell me more. Really? No, 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 really. Oh, wait, wait, tell me more, really. It happens. It happens a lot. It happens a lot. And you have to stay low. The more the Lord lifts you up, the lower you have to go. So you're just on your face, constantly on your face before God. I know I'm right about it. You don't have to amen, don't have to clap, you don't have to say nothing. I know I'm right about it. And Saul did not do that. That's my point. As we'll find out later. But it is interesting. Everything's right. No problems, no insecurity, no revenge, no pride. The Lord has accomplished this great battle. God won an outward battle with Saul. But more important, God won an inward battle in Saul. Notice in verse 14 and 15, and I might get y'all out of here a few seconds early tonight. If you remember the last time, we were in chapter 10, they had a coronation for Saul as king, and the whole nation wasn't behind him, but now the whole nation is. Essentially, they're renewing Saul's kingship in Gilgal, his lordship over their lives. The same is true for the Christian. We can renew our relationship and Jesus' kingship over our lives. This renewal takes place in Gilgal, not Mizvah. Remember, they had so much activity in Mizvah. It's interesting. Now they're moving things, events, the coronation to this area of Gilgal. Now, this area of Gilgal has a lot of history for them. Gilgal is a city located across or west of the Jordan River. Gilgal is where Israel first crossed the Jordan and entered the Promised Land. You know that. Gilgal is the place where the 12 memorial stones were set up. Gilgal is the place where the second generation Israelites were circumcised. Gilgal is the place that the angel of the Lord came to remind the Israelites of their deliverance at the Exodus, their covenant with God. Gilgal was also the tabernacle site. So Gilgal actually is becoming for them an Ebenezer. Remember, I told you, an Ebenezer. The word Ebenezer means, thus far the Lord has helped. This renewal was like a second Ebenezer, another way to remind them of the Lord's help. And I told you that an Ebenezer can be anything that reminds you of God's faithfulness. So in our text, we see three classes of people. Those who are willing to give up their right eye. Those who hopelessly and helplessly weep over a bad situation and do nothing and then lose their right eye. And those who are filled with righteous indignation and anger and decide to do something and not give up their right eye. These are the people who will have the power of God behind them like Saul. These are the people who do great things for God. Philippians 4.13. 
tells us, I can do all things through Christ. Who does what? Strengthens me. And it was William Carey who said, attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. He said, do something so radical and so big that if God is not in it, it's doomed to fail. And I say to you, don't be so quick to give up your right eye. So quick to give up your right eye. Satan roars his ugly head. We want to take you as a servant. Okay. We're going to gouge out your eye. Okay. No. How about standing in the strength of the Lord? How about trusting the Lord to do the impossible? You have been listening to Salt and Light, a radio outreach ministry of Pastor Rodney Finch and Calvary Chapel Cary, located in Apex, North Carolina. Join Pastor Rodney Monday through Friday at this same time. For information regarding service times, you can contact us at 1-800-293-0923. That's 1-800-293-0923. You may listen to today's broadcast in its entirety by visiting the Media Library on our website at cccarry.org. We would like to thank you for tuning in to Salt and Light and pray that you have been blessed. Until next time, may you be salt and light.